It is good to be with you today to uh, eat Russian food and also to share in the Word of God. It is a privilege uh, to be here today. Uh, I'd like to introduce some folks before we go much farther. My wife, Deb, is uh, right there. Uh, if you like the sermon, tell her, because she wrote it. Uh, <laughs> and also, I have two very good friends uh, with me today, uh, Chuck and Carolyn Sievers. Um, they uh, are missionaries leading the Kids for Christ International Ministry, which is a wonderful uh, children's ministry, which is right now impacting lives in 10 different countries, isn't that the case? He might be a good one for you to bring out again sometime for a meal with a mission. He could cook meals from not just one country, but from 10 countries. That's right. There you go. Well, it is good to be here today, uh, particularly to share in the Word of God. And as I come to you today, I've got bad news and I've got Good news. That's an expression which I'm sure that all of us at one time or another have heard at some critical moment in our lives and we really don't want, don't know which one we want to hear first. Well, as we look at some ancient words today, I want to look at ancient words which contain bad news and at the same time, good news. I want us to look at the book of Isaiah. If you wanted to develop a very simple outline of the book of Isaiah, you could say that chapters 1 through 39, for the most part, contain bad news. In the opening chapters of Isaiah, God calls his people to repentance, to repent of their idolatry, immorality, and injustice. And Isaiah holds out hope from God that if they repent, they can know God's grace and forgiveness. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. He also calls God's people in those opening chapters to walk by faith in God's uh, promise day by day. One of my favorite verses in the opening chapters of Isaiah is Isaiah 7-9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. In the opening chapters of the book of Isaiah, the prophet calls his God's people to repentance and to faith. Unfortunately, they did not repent. They did not place their faith in God and his promise. And so throughout much of the rest of the early part of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has bad news for them because of their sin they're going into Babylonian captivity. But even though God's people had been unfaithful, God himself was going to be faithful to his promises. 
And so Isaiah's chapters 1 through 39 are followed by Isaiah chapter 40 through 66, which contains good news. Someday, God is going to allow his people to return from Babylonian captivity. And more important than that, he is going to send his Messiah into the world to take care of the problem of sin once and for all. Now we see that good news particularly in the prophecies of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. And our slide should be coming up now with a listing of those uh, prophecies. Four very rich passages of scripture in which the ministry and the work of Christ is described in a uh, significant manner. I thought about preaching a four-point sermon today with those four points being, uh, uh, those four emphases being my points. But then we'd be here until about 4 o'clock and the soup might get cold, John. So we're not going to do that today. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the last of the prophecies of God's suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. So open your Bibles now and read with me, if you will, uh, the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By my righteous, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, my friends, as we look at this passage, we see that Isaiah has got bad news and good news for the people of God in every generation. And those, the bad news and the good news in this passage is set forth by the contrasting pronouns which Isaiah uses in this passage, and I tried to highlight them on the PowerPoint slides that you just uh, looked at. On the one hand, Isaiah confesses the sinfulness of Israel and all humans in those statements where he uses the pronoun we in its various forms. I don't know if you were counting, but in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6, the pronoun we is used 12 different times. On the other hand, Isaiah speaks of the work of Christ, the suffering servant of the Lord, in the statement where he uses the pronoun he in this passage. And I almost had to get out a calculator to figure this out. In Isaiah chapter 53, the term he, in reference to Christ, is used a whopping 40 times in 12 verses. If you look at Isaiah 53, the, the contrast is marked between we and he, the bad news and the good news of all human reality. And I guess it's summed up in the verse which lies right at the center of this passage. Isaiah uh, 53, 6, which is on the screen right now. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My friends, through the rest of uh, the time that I'm with you today, I want to spend talking about the bad news and the good news of that verse in this chapter. I've got bad news for you today, folks. And the bad news is well summed up in the statement, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. No amount of emotional tap dancing can get any of us around one sad reality in our lives. And that is that apart from the grace of God, we are all sinners. There are dysfunctions, burdens, and addictions in our lives which we are powerless to completely conquer on our own.
The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon once put it this way. And those words should be coming up. Beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. I think we can all say amen to that. And Isaiah says a powerful amen to that in this passage. We are our worst enemies, and that's because all of us on multiplied occasions have gone astray like sheep. I'm sure you are very much aware that the Bible writers are not paying us a compliment when they compare us to sheep. I have never been a shepherd. So I have never had first-hand experience with the mindlessness of sheep. But I've got a pretty good idea how most sheep wander away and get in trouble. And that's because they are self-occupied. And they're out in the pasture feeding. And they look and they see a nice clump of grass over here. And so without paying attention where the shepherd is or where the rest of the flock is, they go over and they munch on that clump of grass for a little while. And then after they've chewed all that up, they might see a nice patch of clover over here. And so they, so they go over here and they munch on that path of patch of clover for a little bit. And then they see another patch of grass down here. And pretty soon, they're not where they should be. They're in danger, away from the shepherd. Now, my friends, I think that's the imagery that Isaiah is trying to project when he says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. As I was preparing this sermon... I had to force myself to think back on the times when I've done or said something mindlessly without considering the implications or the consequences of my action. And after things start to fall apart, I have to stop and pause and say, what was I thinking? Well, the point was, I wasn't thinking. And my lack of discipline got me into all sorts of trouble. I'm not going to go into the gory details of times like that in my life. No more than I expect you to go into the gory details of times like that in your life either. But we all got them, haven't we? All of us, on many occasions, have lived undisciplined and mindless lives, and it has given Satan an opportunity. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. But then Isaiah goes a step farther. He also says, we have turned every one to his own way. And I think Dr. James Dobson gives the best illustration 
of what uh, Isaiah is talking about here was the story I heard him tell several years ago. It was a story of a father taking his little boy, four or five years old, to his first high school basketball game at the local high school. And as they got in, and the little boy was excited, and as they sat down on the bleachers, the dad gave his son the rules for that night where he could and he could not play. And the father told his son that he could play on the bleachers. That was fine. He pointed over to uh, an open area by the concession stand, and he told his son that he could play with his friends there. That was okay. But there was only one place that that little boy, under no circumstances, could go. And he said, son, do you see that big line surrounding the floor? The out-of-bounds line on the basketball court? Under no circumstances are you to cross over that line. And obviously he didn't want to get his son run over by a high school basketball player. The boundary was protective. And after explaining the rules, the father asked the son, do you understand? The little boy said, yes, daddy. Okay, you can go play. The first thing that that little boy did was he walked down the bleachers. He stood right by the out-of-bounds line of the basketball court. He looked up at his father, and he stepped over the line. At that point, he got what he so richly deserved. Uh, from his father. Self-will rebellion. Now, the story of a child rebelling in its innocence had some bad consequences for that child. But I'm sure that once again, you and I can think of times in our life where self-will and rebellion has been our operative principle with much more tragic consequences. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And as we think about those illustrations, as they apply to our lives, I think we can say that Spurgeon was right. Beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies in us. And my friends, that's the bad news of all human reality. But a foreshadowing of the good news is what I saw on Facebook from a very good friend of mine the other day when she posted I have given Christ countless reasons not to love me none of them has changed his mind my friends I've got bad news for you today but I've also got good news for you today and the good news is that the Lord has laid on him Jesus Christ the suffering servant of God the iniquity of us all. 
As far as Isaiah is concerned, there is no way to explain our way, to explain away our sin. But there is a way to be delivered from our sin, and that is through the grace of God as it is revealed to us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's suffering servant. If you look at verses 1 through 6 again, and let's go to the next slide, you can see that these opening verses of this passage contain six step, separate statements which emphasize and re-emphasize that the Messiah is coming to suffer for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carries our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then Isaiah concludes with the statement that we've read again and again in this uh, sermon today. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, after making that emphasis in verses 1 through 6, Isaiah changes his tone in verse 7. And if you look at the next verses, we have basically a blow-by-blow -blow account of Jesus' arrest, betrayal, trial, death, and resurrection. Isaiah says that Jesus was the, Jesus was taken by oppression and judgment. And certainly if you read the gospel accounts, you can see that the kangaroo court that condemned Jesus was a travesty of justice. And Jesus could have gotten his way out of it. He was always able to answer the tricky questions, wasn't he? But when he stood before the Sanhedrin, and when he stood before Pilate, he was strangely quiet. He gave no answers. He refused to show the inconsistencies in the testimony of the false witnesses. He was like a sheep before its shears, silent. And the only words that he spoke were really words which brought about his condemnation. And Isaiah anticipates that. Strangely enough, after describing his trial and his silence at his trial, one thing that we don't see is any real reference to how he died in this passage, do we? I guess that's because already revealed that through David in Psalm 22. And I would encourage you this afternoon to read Psalm 22 when you get home. That is the parallel passage to this. But there is no question in Isaiah 53 that whatever the servant of the Lord is suffering, it ends in death because it talks about his grave, doesn't he? says that he died with criminals, but his grave was with the rich. 
And that certainly was fulfilled when Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body and instead of being buried in a common grave, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb which no one had ever used before. Now, as Isaiah lays all of this out for Israel in the seven centuries before Jesus came into the world, and for us, he once again takes great pain to emphasize the reason for this suffering. The servant is suffering for us. Look, it says that he was stricken for the transgression of my people, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, to make his soul an offering for guilt. Now think about that expression, offering for guilt. That is a technical sacrificial term in the Old Testament. If you have taken the time to read through the book of Leviticus in your devotional reading, the opening chapters of Leviticus talk about the various sacrifices which... uh the Israelites were to offer in atonement for their sin. One of them was a guilt offering. The exact same term is used here. The book of Hebrews says, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Isaiah anticipates that reality when he says that ultimately the perfect sacrifice the perfect offering for guilt is going to have to be offered by the Messiah. There is no doubt as we read Isaiah 53 that as far as Isaiah was concerned, the suffering which Jesus faced was not on account of any shortcomings in his life. It was for us. He offered the guilt offering for us. And my friends, there should be no doubt about that in our minds either. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. In Sunday school class today, we talked about blasphemy. And various forms of blasphemy. Ultimately, that's what the Jewish high court condemned Jesus of. He was put to death for blasphemy because he, a man, claimed to be the Son of God. And if you or I claim to be the Son of God, well, the only begotten Son of God, you or I make that sort of claim, we are either unhinged in some way or we're blasphemous. So the Jewish Sanhedrin was right when they concluded that any mere man saying that he was the son of God was blasphemous and they condemned Jesus. Now there's only one real person who knew whether Jesus was the son of God or not besides Jesus himself and that was the father. And Jesus took the decision of the high court of Judaism 
condemning Jesus for blasphemy, and he overturned it the third day when he raised Jesus from the dead. My friends, it's very interesting. Isaiah anticipates that too. It's not just betrayal, trial, death, and burial. In this passage, Isaiah talks about betrayal, trial, death, burial, and resurrection. Look at what he says in these mind-blowing words. Regarding the servant, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now put yourselves in the shoes of an ordinary Hebrew person back in Isaiah's time. They could have been asking, how is this going to be? The man is dead. He's buried. Well, we know how that happened, don't we? Because on the first day of the week, Jesus' tomb was empty. And once again, so that we don't miss the point, Isaiah tells us the point of the resurrection. It's our salvation. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, as he shall bear their iniquities. As we look at Christ, the resurrected Lord, we can rest assured that our resurrected Lord is also the Savior whose blood brings God's forgiveness to us. One of my favorite hymns is the hymn In Christ Alone. Listen to these words. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the one he came, ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. My friends, a man who could, would have agreed totally with those words is a songwriter who wrote an even greater hymn, John Newton. We know him as the man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Sometimes there are a few of us that don't know that before he came to know God's amazing grace, he was by his own admission an infidel, a libertine, a servant of slaves in West Africa. He was a slave trader, profiting off of other human beings' lives. And he remained in that situation until he almost died in a severe storm at sea on one of his slave boats. At that point, he turned back to the faith of his mother and he placed his own individual faith in Christ and he allowed God to be able to begin to work out his amazing grace in Newton's life. And as a result, John Newton became a great man, a great songwriter, a great preacher, and a great abolitionist. And he wrote these words, which we're all familiar with. 
amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Words not quite so poetic, but very possibly even more powerful, were written by Newton late in his life. He said this, My memory's fading, but I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And my friends, there you have the bad news and the very best news that we could possibly ever hear. Now, what does that mean for us today? Let me just draw a couple of points in very quick conclusion. First of all, I think what we see in uh, Isaiah 53 is a call to repentance. As we recognize that apart from the grace of God, sin is deeply ingrained in our lives and much more close to the surface of our lives than we would like to admit. We need to re-examine our lives in a spirit of repentance. The great Protestant reformer, Luther, Martin Luther, put it this way. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Amen to that. So we have a call to repentance here. Wherever we are in our walk of sanctification, we are called to repent today. More than that, we are called to faith. Isaiah began with the statement, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And that certainly applied to the situation in which Isaiah originally spoke those words, but it applies to every one of us. Whatever situation we find ourselves in in life. And so I truly hope that what we've talked about today will be a reaffirmation of uh, our faith in the gospel. And I hope that each and every one of us, as we think about what we've talked about today, can say from deep down in our heart what we sang earlier. Jesus, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough is enough. Your grace is enough for me. Let's close with a word of prayer. Then, John, you can lead into the invitation time.